February 2021, the United States Department of Defense acknowledges that hackers acting on behalf of a foreign government, most likely a Russian intelligence agency, access multiple government networks, including the Treasury and Commerce Departments. One week earlier, the National Security Agency issued a warning that Russian state-sponsored actors were exploiting flaws in a system widely used by the federal government. This hacking campaign is suspected of using tainted software from IT management company SolarWinds, along with other hacking techniques to breach thousands of organizations and tunnel deeper into at least nine federal agencies and 100 private companies. Today, as a guest on Virginia Technology Today, we are honored to have with us Thomas Weeks, Director Technology Futures and Community Advocacy Division of Information Technology with Virginia Tech. Good afternoon, Thomas. Great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Kim. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thomas, I'm Kim Blair, and we also welcome our listeners to Virginia Technology Today, a public affairs feature of WFIR. Thomas Weeks is our guest, and we are discussing cybersecurity and the Virginia Cyber Range. Thomas, you have a tremendous background with the Department of Defense and the cybersecurity world. I understand you have over 17 years with Rackspace prior to Virginia Tech. The article that John referenced in the opening is pretty astonishing to many of us. Please put cybersecurity into perspective for our listeners. What is cybersecurity and does it differ from physical security? With physical bank security, you have gold, physical gold in a physical vault, and that's what you have to secure. You secure locks, you secure doors, you pay security guards, things along those lines. When you're talking about cyber, you could be having an online transaction with your bank from your phone, from McDonald's, for example, and a Russia and hacker could actually be intercepting the traffic, depending on where he's situated, and breaking into the bank through your session and there's no physical boundaries in play. He's in Russia, you're in the United States. It would take an act of Interpol and several inter international organizations in the FBI to bring something like that to closure and to, and to actually bring people to justice. Thomas, it's a great frame of reference for what cybersecurity is. What do you think is the state of cybersecurity in the U.S.? It's a little scary. You have to talk about, first of all, kind of what realm or what domain you're talking about, whether it's governmental security, civilian security, banking security, personal security, and then there's a mixture of personal devices and the cloud and, and physical home systems and things like that. So as a nation, several of the big nation states have all come kind of armed up kind of quietly. And with the launch of uh, Stuxnet, um, in the early 2000s, we saw kind of the first use of state-sponsored cybersecurity type of work, cyber warfare actually going on. And so that kind of let the cat out of the bag and a lot of the countries realized, wow, we need to up our game. And a lot of, there's been a lot of efforts in the last decade, decade and a half of kind of catching up to a point where we can defend ourselves. Now we're realizing that just as our, a lot of our three-letter organizations have armed up and have buttons in place all around the world in case something bad happens to us, other nation states have done the same to us. And we're just now seeing that exposed in some of these latest breaches with like uh, solar winds and things like that. Well, Kim and Thomas, these are some great insights. I'm John Phillips, and today we are speaking with Thomas Weeks, Director of Technology Futures for Virginia Tech. Thomas, one of your roles is with Virginia Cyber Range. It's kind of an interesting name that you wouldn't expect to hear when we talk about cyber, but tell us a little bit about the origin and the functions of the Cyber Range. 
In a nutshell, the Virginia Cyber Range is the place where teachers log into to get free state-sponsored resources, cloud resources, so they can do hacking in a safe environment. Just like you have a gun range, or gun ranges are designed to keep bullets. You play with dangerous things in, in a safe place, basically. All bullets go downrange and it doesn't get out of the range. Same thing with the Cyber Range. We're giving these kids uh, offensive and defensive cybersecurity and hacking tools. We need to keep those bullets or those packets on the range and so that they can't get out and do damage. And so that's the way we, uh, because, and, and as, as we tell some of the parents that are concerned, you're teaching my kids to hack. It's like, well, you, you cannot defend against what you don't understand. So to be able to defend against malware and viruses and different Trojans and worms and things like this, you need to be able to understand how they work. The actual tools that are used and the methodologies they use to get into systems before you can defend against them. So that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. Well, after 30 years in the Army Reserves, I'll tell you, a, a range is a fun place for me to be. So I, I would take it for a hacker. These ranges are kind of fun, too. But I got to ask you, how in the world does someone end up running a cyber range? How did you get here? It's actually the brainchild of Dr. David Raymond. He's also Virginia Tech. He's with our ITSO security office. And uh, he was asked to step up because he's taught cybersecurity for a number of years for the military. He used to, he's an old army tank guy and kind of got sucked into through IT and like kind of like I did from IT into cybersecurity. And so he's been teaching for a number of years. And both he and I, I've taught classes for years too. And one of the pains with teaching in a physical environment is you have to, you know, you start a class just like a computer lab with, with students. Uh, you start the class, you wipe all the systems and start over. And so that, that doesn't scale, though. If you're going to teach things at scale, they want to they wanna do the, – the state came to him uh, and Virginia Tech with the, the proposal, hey, we want a state – we want to roll something out that will scale statewide. It's like, well, we can't do that with physical machines, you know, physical racks of servers and hard drives. So we're going to need uh, cloud-based infrastructure. And that, that didn't exist. And so both me and myself, a couple other rackers, Rackspace employees, um, he kind of sucked up a couple of us. And one of our main lead developer, Nidiwatt is his name. So he, Nidiwatt's very experienced with cloud resources, as was I. He's on the developer side. I'm kind of on the engineering side. And so he got, got Nidiwatt to over there and to start writing a basically uh, cloud-based code infrastructure, I would say infrastructure as code, to roll out and implement a 100% serverless infrastructure. So when we say serverless, it's not a box in a closet. It's basically Amazon's data centers. You pick one of their systems and say, you know, put this on that server or this, this cloud virtual machine or this API gateway. And just like Legos, you basically build the entire thing in the cloud. And by, by the time you're done, if you've done it right, you've got a basically infinitely scalable system um, that we can have thousands and thousands of people logged at the same time. And it's not going to bog down the system. It's not going to get slower. Well, Virginia Tech has been real generous with the Roanoke Blacksburg Technology Council to let our folks use the cyber range with you. And that was a wonderful thing to do. But it makes me interested to know who should be using the cyber range and how would they get access to it? It's paid for by taxpayers' money. And we so we get uh, an allocation every year to keep it going. But it's designed for teachers to join. And we send out invitations. We let all the public schools know about it. They join and they get an account. And they can, at that point, invite all their students to their courses. And these course, some of the courses, if they don't have any content, they can use our courseware that's that's paid for also by the state to, and uh, kind of curated and managed by us to make sure it works. And uh, we give them the virtual machines, and they send out the email email invites to their students, and then all the students join. And 
everyone can either work in the classroom together, remote together, or from home or from McDonald's. It doesn't matter where you're coming in from. We are speaking with Thomas Weeks, Director of Technology Futures for Virginia Tech. How should educators use the Cyber Range events and how it functions, Thomas? Well, there's a few different ways. And like I said, we have, it's divided into a couple main areas. The courseware section, which is where teachers, and by the way, this is virginiacyberrange.org is the, is the URL. If any teachers out there want to join, you just go out there, ask to join. We'll have someone, a process in the background for vetting you to make sure you're actually a teacher and not a student who's socially engineering us. After you're added to the system, you'll be able to kind of browse through the courseware and download fully vetted courses modules or just labs kind of of course imagine a course is a full semester long course with you know slide decks powerpoints quizzes and labs and then or if you just want to get a module say i want a module on 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 cryptography you can download just a crypto cryptography module and just do that or if you want to do do some hands-on labs you want to teach your own content just use us for labs you can do that and just pull up virtual machines when it's time to do labs. So that's kind of what it looks like. And it's designed for K through 12 and uh, community colleges as well as universities. So we have kind of beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels. How effective has the messaging been with educators? Are you seeing some of our educators really embrace the concept that you've laid out? They, they love the idea. They love the execution. And they're also helping them. We're always also continually kind of pinging them out what could, what could make it better. We have an annual conference called the Virginia Cybersecurity Educators Conference, and we kind of invite them all out. We invite vendors out and big kumbaya thing where all the educators come together. We kind of share best practices. They give us real, uh, real blunt face-to-face feedback on how they like the system with what we can improve. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like from a kind of community perspective. But the teachers, one, one thing to keep in mind, this is not the, the cyber range is just a resource. Um, they're still doing the teaching and they're still doing the, the paper grading and everything like that. So that's kind of just to kind of scope it. A lot, a lot of people think it's like, oh, you're great. You're doing quizzes and tests. No, we're just, we're, we're basically the serverless infrastructure they use because a lot of schools, for example, if you've ever tried to do, go into a school and do education, I've tried to do some uh, Arduino classes for the local. Uh, K-12, and there's one system administrator for the entire school district. He may only be at that school on a Wednesday, for example. So if you want software installed, you're going to have to book it uh, like a couple weeks ahead of time and have, you know, have him come out and install the software. And then if it doesn't work, that's another headache. Um, and secondly, not only do you not, is it hard to get software on school networks, but they sure as heck do not want hacker tools on the school network, not even in a computer lab, um, because you know how kids are, they typically take off and quickly become more advanced than the teachers with regards to IT. So when teachers see that, oh, I can use this resource that's in the cloud off the school network, network administrators love that. So that's, that's kind of what it looks like in a nutshell. I'm curious what kind of feedback you get from the students. Do you hear much back from them? With students, you're going to get you tend to get a lot of complaints because that's where you know they're being forced to do their work. I mean, it may be limiting to them. For example, they're they're used to being able to go out to websites and do malicious things. For example, something they do can do on their laptop with with uh, VMware Player. For example, they can do actual hacking things on the open net. 
we don't allow that. We don't allow those packets off the net. They can they can actually get to the web from the cyber range, but it's through our proxied gateway, which does does not allow out malicious malicious traffic or even email really, unless they're reading like webmail. Everything's basically web based. So if they can hit a web page, they can read a web page and they can look at it, but they can't attack it. They, you can't even ping it. You can't do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you can't those kind of packets cannot traverse off the range. So we, we get a little bit of an aha moment when students and teachers alike realize, oh, well, there's certain things we can't do on the range. So for example, you can't go hunting on a gun range because there's no there's no targets. It's the same kind of thing on the cyber range. So that's kind of what it's designed for. And I think as, as soon as people realize that it, it has a scope of purpose, um, then they work within that scope. They're a lot more, they're a lot happier. Well, let's turn the discussion back to traditional cybersecurity and take advantage of your background. Tell us a little bit about how to avoid attacks and maybe some of the threats that our listeners' data is exposed to and how to avoid them. It comes down really to the classic best practices. So it sounds boring as heck, but it's operating system updates, automatic. It's getting rid of passwords, going to pass phrases, and maybe that's a new term. Um, people say strong passwords, but strong passwords are proven not good technology. So people are moving away from passwords and moving to pass phrases, which is, I think of a, I don't know, um, a few words strung together and a phrase that you'll remember. And it's uh, much more secure. And the most important thing is much more because the human factor, much easier to remember than passwords. Um, and also very important, um, I have it here on my list of things to share that uh, never ever using the same password in more than one place. And that's probably the biggest challenge I think people have thinking they need a, you know, a random thing for every single website they go to. And some people have gotten around that by using a password or uh, password vault or something like that, or KeyPass or uh, some of the others on the market. And you can either do that or what I recommend, since we all need to go to passphrases anyway, is coming up with a system of a couple base words you use and then something unique for each website you go to that the website reminds you of. So when you look at the website, you're going to think of this phrase. You combine that with your other two key phrases, and now you've got a unique phrase just for that website. You can do that very easily, and I now do that on most of my sites and don't need, you know, pseudo-random passwords for every single site I visit. I think think also in the personal security side, we're seeing a lot more is breaches through apps. Um, so these are apps that you either put on your on your desktop or um, on your phone is the bigger one of the bigger upcoming targets now. And we're seeing things where it's assumed if you want to run this app, you know, you want to run this game app and it wants access to your camera and your microphone and your GPS location, you can tell it no in many cases now. And in Android, that's been a feature for a while where you know this flashlight app wants access to my camera, my microphone, my GPS. You just tell it no. And if, this, if the app crashes because of that, then don't run that app. So in using common sense, there's also a feature where you can say only give these permissions while I'm running this app. So in other words, don't allow that flashlight. App. You know, if, if I do have some app that needs my GPS location and a camera, for example, don't grant that access unless I've turned it on, unless I've turned on the app itself. So those are just some of the common sense things. It always comes back to basics. And, and the human factor is often the weakest. So even, I'm not sure if you've heard of, have you all heard of multi-factor authentication? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, most people have that. In some, probably with your, with regards to your bank, if you're going to log in or make a, deposit, a withdrawal or something or transfer funds, it's going to ask you, send you a text message. Uh, text messages are okay, but they're also becoming less and less secure too. Um, so a lot of uh, serious uh, outfits like Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and others are going to 
multi-factor authentication services or what's called OAuth. For example, you could log into some new blogging website with your Facebook credentials or with your Google credentials. So using OAuth, um, centralized authentication, the only thing you need to watch out for there is if they ask for additional permissions. So if they just want to authenticate you, that's fine. If they want to authenticate you, want your email address and all your friends, that's a bad website. Don't, don't trust that kind of thing. But on the, on the multi-factor side, there's applications like Google Authenticator or Duo um, on the commercial side that are really, really great at combining what's called strong authentication or uh, strong multi-factor, which is a combination of something you have, something you are, and something you know. That would be three-factor authentication. But most people settle, most places settle for two-factor. So something you have is like your phone, and then something you know would be a PIN. So um, combine those two things, and you're good to go. Throw biometrics into that, something you are, which is like facial recognition or fingerprints, and that's even stronger. That's a, that's a three-factor authentication, which is probably the, one of the, the better levels of, of authentication security you can get. Well, you've set me up real nicely, uh, Thomas, for my next question, because there's a multitude of cybersecurity software available in the market. And, you know, for the most of us, uh, we don't really know what's good and what's not, and how would anyone actually know the difference? So tell us a little bit about software and how we should use it to prevent uh, problems. Most of this commercial software are not going to stop certain types of hackers. Most of the hacking that, that we see out there of, you know, big data breaches and passwords and things like that and social security numbers are organized crime. So you have Russian mafia, you have actors in kind of the, the dark web who are basically hacking systems to get credentials to sell. So they don't want to hack you. They just want to sell your data to someone else who wants to uh, try to get into your bank, for example. And so most of the software, commercial software you're going to buy out there for PCs and Macs, for example, is software that's designed to thwart those, which is they're designed to stop known vulnerabilities and known attacks. They're not really designed for zero-day, what's called zero-day exploits, which is the type of exploits that uh, nation-states take advantage of. We saw that in Stuxnet, Stuxnet being one of the most advanced uh, attacks ever up until this solar winds attack. It was one of the most advanced we'd ever, we'd ever seen. But these state actors are using what's called zero-day exploits, which can't be patched against because there are vulnerabilities no one knows about except the nation states. So your typical off-the-shelf, you know, semantic, McAfee, and those kind of things are not going to protect you against nation states. But keep in mind, you're probably not a target of nation states. The only reason you'd be a target of a nation state such as China is if you were a scientist working on a project for the university and you had you know research information that they wanted. So that would be the only time you'd be targeted. You can't really protect against those except through processes, which is you know staying disconnected, staying off the network um, in dangerous places, not bringing your work laptop home, things like that. But for just for, for everyday run-of-the-mill kind of protecting yourself from black, hat, black hats and dark web folks trying to harvest your social media, Facebook, credentials so they can get a hold of your childhood dog's name and your mother's maiden name and your birthday, they're going to stop from Trojans from being delivered onto your system of viruses and malware. But again, it comes down to the human element, which is probably the weakest, which is going to trick you into answering questions about your favorite childhood dog and your cousin's name to get that information to sell it back to the dark web. And then they, they're basically, they have backend databases that are connecting the information they're harvesting off Facebook to the exploits that they've got through some of these bigger financial institutions and uh, Experian hacks and things like that. So 
they're basically taking that information, combining it into larger databases, and selling that for thousands and millions of dollars on the dark web. I don't, I don't mean to give a gloomy story, but there's, there's two kind of sides to that. For your personal PC, some of those antivirus packages and firewalls will do fine, but um, the weakest point is probably actually on the human side of that equation. And so that's where due diligence comes into play and uh, being vigilant. So, Thomas, as we move forward to the end of the show, uh, tell us about the future of cybersecurity. Who is behind these threats that you anticipate that are never-ending? It used to be just small operators, um, kids that were messing around and doing, doing funky stuff. Once they started sharing this information and organized crime started finding out that there's money to be made, that's where the bulk of the push has been there. But on the personal side, what typically most of us have to worry about are those things of uh, those common common best practices of keeping your system secure, keeping it updated and patched, having secure passwords, not using them in the same place. This, this is that boring stuff. I hate to say it, but it's, it's not that exciting. But some of the newer attacks that are coming up, we're seeing, for example, at universities and corporations assumes and it's great when you buy some new technology to protect yourself like multi-factor authentication you think oh good we're finally safe it's not a silver bullet security is never a silver bullet it is it's a it's an ongoing chess game multi-factor authentication has now been compromised because what they'll do is they'll send phishing emails and if you click on the links you shouldn't be clicking on which is again the human factor you click on those links they get your attention and they say you need to change your hr password and they get you to log into a fake HR page and give your corporate login. Now the hackers have your corporate login, and they can go in and redirect funds to be direct deposited to their bank accounts from your bank account. And when it asks you, are you sure you want to do this, please verify over multi-factor. The email says, when you get this message, type it in here. And people are pulling up multi-factor and typing it in where they're told. So it's, again, it's it all comes back to the human factor and thinking about what you're seeing on the screen. Typically, uh, my mom asked me, well, how do I know when the hackers are real and then when it's not? I said, typically, the behavior you'll see is if they're motivating you through fear or urgency, red flags should go up. So always take note when you see either they're, they're trying to scare you, like your, your Google account's going to be deleted and we're going to new call your data, or take advantage of this now. This, this deal is only lasting till midnight. So fear and urgency are the two mo- big motivators that hackers get people to do things that they would otherwise consider you know, not so smart. So when you see something that's either causing you fear or urgency, just let the red flags go up and say, hey, I need to watch out for this. But uh, even uh, talking about future hacks, multi-factor is one of the new ones that's, uh, that's going to really start hurting us. You're going to see more and more in 2021. We saw a little bit of that in 2020, but it's, it's just going to get worse from here. Well, Thomas, if somebody wanted to go into cybersecurity and have a career, what do you think the future demand is going to be like and what should they be doing? Demand is already way outpacing supply. And that's why Cyber Range was brought into existence was because we have, oh gosh, how many thousands, 33,000 unfilled cybersecurity jobs in Virginia and no one to fill them. And we don't want to go back to H-1B visas and having to rely on that to fill domestic security slots, but especially security. We should be able to handle our own security. 
Well, a lot of the high schools have kind of taken a clue and are starting to look at getting kids to graduate with IT certifications. That includes uh, the A+, Network+, and Security+, certifications, as well as Cisco Networking CCNAs and MTA, Microsoft Technology. And so they're starting to graduate these kids with these degrees so they can go directly into, for example, take a two-semester course at community college and basics of cybersecurity and boom, get a job right off the bat. So getting kids to where they're fluent in this and it comes to second nature is the first part. If kids are coming into university level cold, then it's going to take a couple of years just to get them up to speed where they can start learning about the ins and outs of cybersecurity because there's a lot of underlying IT technology. You can't just learn security. You have to learn the basics of, of networking and TCP IP and how the internet works and how it breaks before you can even get into how to break into a system. So those are the kind of things and um, the kind of jobs that are out there or everything um, I'd say a lot of a lot of folks, if you just get into IT and take any IT degree, you're going to learn a lot of the basics to get positioned for a career in cybersecurity. And typically, if if you if you work at a small small mom and pop shop or uh, or at the corporate level, you get into IT and you let people know, hey, I really like to learn more about that you know, that security thing or how to scan our network or how to patch our systems, people are going to throw work at you. So I would say just uh, if that's your passion, follow that passion. Like me, I wasn't even looking for cybersecurity when I got into electrical engineering. And I went from electrical engineering to to computers and the internet. From there, ended up being a security specialist because it was my passion. So follow your passions and don't just go to a job because it pays more money. If you do what you're passionate about, the money will come later. Thomas, these are great words. I have this great quote from Stephen Jobs that I tell a lot of people. Um, your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. So thank you for sharing that right. insight. Um, it's been great for you to join us today, Thomas, and thank you so much for your insight into cybersecurity. We'd also like to thank our executive producer, Joey Self, for making the show possible and Thought Out Media for producing the program. Until next week, I'm Kim Blair. And I'm John Phillips, and this is Virginia Technology Today.